Hey Nick, so I've been using the OBG project a lot recently to help me remember some of the GYN things that I started to forget after my first year of MFM fellowship and also on a lot of the primary care stuff like on today's episode for asthma and pregnancy. Yeah, you know, as these oral boards draw closer to us, Faye, I worry more and more about my ability to remember some of these things, but thankfully the OBG project literally fits in my pocket and I can pull it up on my phone with my library from OBG first find everything that I need and have probably forgotten. And if you are a fourth year resident, you can get one year of OBG first absolutely free. You just go ahead and enter um, your email and let them know who you are and they'll get back to you to let you get that subscription service. You can head over to our website, greegsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar and you can get signed up for OBG first. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. Coffee. All right, so today we're going to talk about yet another one of those topics that we've never really spent a lot of time on, Faye, um, and anapartum fetal testing. What would you say our learning objective should be today? So today we are going to discuss the general rationale for using antenatal testing in obstetric practice. And remember, this is different from external fetal monitoring during labor. This is antenatal. Um, we're going to review the five major modalities of antenatal testing, which are kick counts, NST, CST, BPP, and UAD. And we'll talk about what all of that alphabet soup means. And then we'll also understand the evidence that exists justifying the use of antenatal testing and compare the efficacy of these various modalities. If you'd like to follow along, you can do um, the reading from ACOG Practice Bulletin 229, which is Antepartum Fetal Surveillance, and Committee Opinion 828, Indications for Antepartum Fetal Surveillance. What we're not going to talk about is we're not going to talk about the frequency, timing, or specific indications for testing. Committee Opinion 828 does provide a really great overview of this as a reference, and we'll obviously mentor an own practice for testing in subject-specific episodes. And uh, various institutions may have their own policies and procedures that you should be aware of, and so that's why we don't really want to talk specifically about when or why for testing, just because it may vary from institution to institution. So Nick, start us off. Talk to me a little bit about the techniques of antenatal testing and the rationale behind them. Yeah. So one of the like big questions is why do we do this testing, right? Like mm -hmm. what is the whole purpose or what are we looking for with it? Um, and the idea is that these testing techniques are meant to detect changes in fetal status that occur over time, particularly in response to what we've talked about before with fetal monitoring, which is hypoxemia and acidemia. Hypoxemia that occurs chronically and results again in that chronic state, metabolic acidemia, causes redirection of fetal blood flow. And for instance, one of the ways that we see this is in the form of decreased renal perfusion that would then lead to oligohydramnios. You also can see other physiologic changes such as decreased heart rate variability, decreased fetal movement, poor muscle tone, and all of these things can suggest, again, a chronic process that may suggest something not right is going on with the pregnancy. We care about this progressive metabolic acidosis mostly, though, because, 
again, this can lead over time to stillbirth or fetal death. And obviously, that's the primary outcome we're looking to avoid. And so with testing, you're always looking at this testing through the lens of the prevention of stillbirth. Anapartum surveillance following from this is generally indicated for any condition which raises the risk of stillbirth above that of the general population. And in Committee Opinion 828, they actually go into sort of how they define these indications for anapartum fetal testing and describe the cutoff for those indications as 0.8 stillbirths per thousand deliveries um, as the cutoff to define antenatal testing as indicated for a given condition. That's about twice the odds of stillbirth at term in an otherwise low-risk pregnancy, and it also actually represents the false negative rate of a BPP. Um, we'll talk more about the false negative rates of these various tests later. Importantly, kind of as a caveat to all of this, though, is that any fetus that has neurologic depression or fetal anomalies may still be at increased risk for stillbirth, but this antenatal testing may not be as equipped to detect the risk. Again, a lot of this presumes that there's a normal response of the autonomic nervous system in the fetus and normal responses to stimuli. Um, and again, in a fetus with anomalies, those mechanisms may not be intact or they may have differences. Similarly, the utility and predictive value of antenatal testing is going to be less precise at earlier gestational ages just because the autonomic nervous system hasn't matured in those fetuses. Again, we'll talk a little bit about all of that later in the podcast today, um, but importantly and probably the takeaway is that as with everything, context is the key to interpretation and management of this testing. Hey, I think one of the super interesting ones that I actually didn't know a lot about in terms of the evidence behind it before reading through this bulletin was about maternal kick counts. A decrease in fetal movement has been demonstrated as a risk for stillbirth, which is why we ask folks to come to be assessed for it, right? I mean, like we always get calls through the triage line like, oh, my baby's not moving. And of course, you have to tell those women to come in um, or, you know, monitor their kick counts. So we'll often counsel people about kick counts um, after a reassuring visit. But, you know, the question is, you know, how effective is it, right? Like, does decreased fetal movement necessarily mean that they're at increased risk for stillbirth? And what's that predictive rate? A meta-analysis of five RCTs and over 450,000 fetuses found no differences in stillbirth rate between groups undergoing routine kick counts and those who did not. However, stillbirth rate in the trials overall was low, so only 0.54% in the kick count group and 0.59% in the control group, with the confidence interval for the relative risk ranging from 0.85 to 1, so crossing 1 and thus statistically non-significant, but it does suggest that maybe it does lean more towards benefits with additional study. One thing to consider, though, is that those in the kick count group actually did experience slightly higher rates of preterm delivery, labor induction, and cesarean delivery. And so maybe that would suggest that there's actually some harm from doing fetal kick counts for patients. However, what's most likely is that more studies are necessary to help make a better determination regarding the utility of kick counts. Actually, looking at this meta-analysis, one trial contributed 82% of the patients. In general, what does that mean we should do to tell people about kick counts? So the practice bulletin mentions one trial instructing patients to lie on their side and count 10 movements over a two-hour period is reassuring. And we, of course, are all trained with this as the recommended way. The bulletin also mentions another way, which is to count movement for one hour three times a week. And reassuring was considered to be the movement number equal to or exceeding the previously established baseline count, which at least to me seems way more complicated than, yeah, you know, 
agree. <laughs> the 10 movements in a two hour period. So overall, there definitely isn't robust evidence to do routine fetal movement assessments or to use this as a testing technique. But again, definitely have your patients present to care for any sense of decreased movement. All right, Nick, so let's now talk about, I mean, our classic way to assess for antenatal testing, which is non-stress tests. Yeah. So from here, you know, aside from the kick counts, the non-stress test is kind of going to form the foundation for a lot of the other tests we're going to talk about today. It's again, that classic method based on the notion that if the fetus is not acidotic, heart rate variability is going to be appropriate and the heart rate is going to accelerate with fetal movements. The heart rate in an NST should be monitored for at least 20 minutes, but may require longer periods, up to 40 minutes even, due to the presence of fetal sleep cycles. Vibroacoustic stimulation is permissible to obtain a stimulated acceleration. It's not going to falsely reassure you about the acid-base status, and it can actually decrease the amount of time you're waiting through a sleep cycle. Fun trivia fact, Faye, I didn't realize that apparently this has been studied before, and the average time that you gain from performing BAS is about seven minutes versus just waiting. So oh. seven minutes of bonus time, I guess. Time to document. <laughs> hey, that adds up if you're seeing a ton of patients in antenatal testing, you know? Absolutely. Kind of how do you do viroacoustic stimulation? Again, per the bulletin, the stimulus should be applied for about one to three seconds, and you can repeat it up to three times to have a valid NST. Test results of an NST are reactive or non-reactive. And again, as Faye mentioned earlier, even though this is the same technology that we use for continuous monitoring and labor, we don't use the same terminology. So don't call an NST category one. The only results of an NST are reactive or non-reactive. Reactive means that there are two or more accelerations in a 20 minute period, with accelerations defined as a 10 by 10 um, 10 beats elevation over 10 seconds, that is, at less than 32 weeks, and 15 by 15 at greater than 32 weeks. Non-reactive is defined that over 40 minutes of monitoring, the acceleration criteria is still not met. So one thing that I think trips a lot of people up is that can you have D-cells in a reactive NST? Yeah, you can. Because again, if you have two X cells, but then you have D-cells at the same time, that's still a reactive NST, technically. Remember, the category system in labor is, again, different than NST descriptions. But we should talk for a minute about NSTs and decelerations. Faye, do you want to talk to us about that? Sure. In terms of decelerations in NSTs, variable decelerations that are non-repetitive and brief, meaning less than 30 seconds, are not associated with fetal compromise or need for obstetric intervention. But if they are repetitive, meaning greater than 3 and 20 minutes, there is therefore an increased risk for cesarean delivery for non-reassuring monitor monitoring, and so they should be considered for additional testing. Decelerations lasting for over a minute during NST is associated with high risk of C-section as well as stillbirth, so additional testing or delivery should be indi indicated if it's present. And again, that consideration is going to depend a lot on what's going on with the patient, what their gestational age is, etc. I think the other common question, Nick, that I have gotten, and I've always asked too, you know, coming into residency, is like, well then why don't we just put everybody in for antenatal testing and start them at like 24 weeks, right? And and that's just because, you know, then there's always that question of, well, when is an NST actually going to be reactive? And that's a little bit harder to answer. 
so there are studies that have looked at this using that original like 15 by 15 criteria for mm-hmm. accelerations. And at 24 to 28 weeks, up to 50% of NSTs are not reactive. Wow. And that means that you're going to be doing a lot of additional testing if you put those babies on the monitor, right? At 28 to 32 weeks, up to 15% of NSTs are non-reactive. And again, you're going to be doing a lot of additional monitoring for these babies. So for this reason, 10 by 10 criteria was proposed and deemed sufficient, but certainly the rate of non-reactive tracings are much higher at earlier gestational ages. And so some institutions adjust monitoring protocols accordingly. Nick, I think one thing that I've had some questions about, you know, like about like when do we perform these, why do we get these, is we have the non-stress tests um, versus the contraction stress tests, right? Like the reason that the non-stress tests are called non-stress tests is because we have this contraction stress test. So what is it? Why do we do it? And what information does it give us on top of everything else? Yeah, so I guess you could think of this almost as, again, as a step up from the NST, right? So now rather than just looking at the fetus at baseline, sort of what the status is hanging out, we can use a contraction stress test or CST for short to interpret the fetal heart rate response to provoked uterine contractions. Contractions, just because they squeeze and blood flow decreases to the fetus during that time, there's going to be some transient fetal deoxygenation. There shouldn't be any pathologic change to the fetus, though. So if a fetus is compromised in response, they won't be able to compensate physiologically, and therefore decelerations will show up. This can be helpful as an adjunct to, say, an NST that demonstrated a deceleration or was non-reactive, and you need the next step to determine how is the fetus doing at this point. I think one of the most confusing things is that there's a lot of vocabulary regarding contraction stress tests and interpretations of results, and it gets a little bit backwards in your mind. So let's start with just a little bit of vocabulary regarding how the test is run. First, there's adequate and inadequate, or adequate and unsatisfactory. So adequate CSTs require three contractions that persist for at least 40 seconds. An adequate CST requires three contractions, each of which persists for 40 seconds, and occurs in a 10-minute period. If the CST is inadequate, contractions can be stimulated with IV oxytocin or nipple stimulation. Um, And actually, in this testing, nipple stimulation is actually very useful and can achieve adequate testing in half the time required versus IV oxytocin based on one study. Unsatisfactory or inadequate CSTs by contrast, have fewer than three contractions in 10 minutes. Um, And so again, you need that sort of additional boosting with Pitocin or nipple stimulation. Or unsatisfactory CSTs can also be described as uninterpretable tracings in response. So once the test is adequate, you should monitor similarly to an NST over a 20-minute period. The test results can be one of five options. And this is, I think, where it, again, gets really confusing. So pay attention closely to the terminology here. So a negative CST is actually a good result. That means that there were no late or significant variable decelerations that were elicited. So again, a negative CST means the fetus is not compromised. A positive CST, on the other hand, is a bad result. That means that late decelerations were present after 50% or more of contractions. Um, 
If you have an inadequate CST, meaning not enough contractions or not strong enough contractions, and you still have late D cells after 50% or more, you can actually get a positive CST, though, with an inadequate test. Um, the CST, again, with those D cells present 50% or more of the time, suggests compromise of the fetus. Equivocal suspicious is noted when there are intermittent late decelerations or significant variable decelerations present, but they don't meet that 50% or more of contraction guideline. Equivocal CSTs, again, there was equivocal suspicious that we just mentioned, and now there's equivocal that demonstrate that fetal heart rate decelerations are occurring in the presence of contractions that are occurring more frequently than every two minutes, those contractions, or the contractions are lasting longer than 90 seconds. And the reason that this is equivocal is basically it's hard to tell in this scenario whether the uterine activity like tachycystole or excess contraction strength are actually compromising the validity of the test versus whether it's something intrinsic to the fetus and placenta that is causing those the decelerations on that test. And then we've already talked about unsatisfactory, but again, if the tracing is uninterpretable, that would be a way to get that result. So again, negative CST is a good thing. Positive CST is a bad thing. Equivocal suspicious means the D cells were there, but not more than 50% of the time. Equivocal means the D cells were there, but the uterus was acting too significantly for us to interpret it. And unsatisfactory means that it's interpretable. All right, Faye, I think that was really a lot of knowledge there on that vocabulary. The last thing that I'll say on CSTs is that they're great tools. Um, they're things that we don't typically perform, um, but CSTs shouldn't be performed, generally speaking, conditions that are contraindicated to labor or vaginal delivery, like a placenta previa. Um, so don't propose doing one of those if you've got, like, you know, the 33 week placenta previa growth restriction, something like that. You're mm. better off with a different test than a CST. So it is a great thing to keep in your back pocket for a test with, say, a equivocal or non-reactive NST. All right, Faye, take us home into this next part about ultrasound. The next thing that we're going to talk about are biophysical profiles and the modified biophysical profile, or as you probably heard it, BPP. So the BPP combines an NST with up to four ultrasound criteria, which are amniotic fluid volume, fetal movement, fetal tone, and fetal breathing. The way that these are counted is you have to have a reactive NST, which counts as two out of the 10 points. The amniotic fluid volume per the practice bulletin is a single deepest vertical pocket of greater than two centimeters, and that's considered adequate. However, some practices may use an amniotic fluid index instead of this um, single deepest pocket, or in addition to a single deepest pocket. RCTs have suggested that the DVP, that deepest vertical pocket, is acceptable and may even be preferred. So that's another two points. The next are fetal movement, and sometimes you might hear this as discrete body or limb movements, or you might hear gross body movements, and that's just the baby moving in any type of way, squirming around. So that's another two points, so we're up to six. Next is fetal tone. Um, you might have heard of this also referred to as fetal extension or flexion, and this is one or more episodes of extension of a fetal extremity with return to flexion or opening and closing of a hand. And lastly is fetal breathing movements. So this is considered positive if you have one or more episodes of fetal breathing movements of 30 seconds or more. All of the ultrasound criteria should be observed in a 30-minute period or less, and each component is scored as a zero if it's not met or two if it is met, including the NST. Why is it zero and two and not one? I don't know. So your total score is 10, 
And so an 8 to 10 out of 10 is considered normal. That's a normal baby, not at increased risk for stillbirth. 6 out of 10 is considered equivocal, and we'll talk a little bit um, about what that means. Usually what that means is that you would just have to repeat the BPP within a 24-hour period to see if it either becomes normal or deteriorates. Four or less out of 10 is considered an abnormal biophysical profile, and that is very concerning and does increase the risk of stillbirth and so should prompt you to act, which is to actually um, discuss with the patient about delivery if they are you know, of a certain gestational age, or you can also consider repeating testing depending on the situation if you think that this is a baby that outside of the womb may not necessarily survive, for example. But these are very complex conversations that you should probably be having with your senior residents, with your attending or your maternal fetal medicine um, providers. The modified BPP just consists of the NST in addition to the assessment of the amniotic fluid. If either of these are abnormal, then the usual step is to proceed with the remainder of the BPP. Oligohydramnios, however, is a separate and significant risk for stillbirth. Remember that delivery is actually recommended for this starting at 36 weeks or later, and additional testing should definitely be performed if this is seen earlier than 36 weeks. If you are seeing a lot of decelerations as well on the monitor, then also consider resuscitation and maybe even delivery. So for example, I see this sometimes with the residents where they'll see an NST that has decelerations in it, but has a bunch of axles. And they'll say, well, let's do a biophysical profile. And you have to remind them that a BPP, it does not reassure us when there are decelerations on the monitor. It only is reassuring when there is an absence of reactivity or accelerations in that 20 to 40 minute period that you're monitoring your baby. So I think the last thing that we said that we were going to talk about are the umbilical artery Dopplers. So talk to me about this. What is it? Why do we measure it? What does it mean? Umbilical artery Dopplers, or UADs for short, they're a special ultrasound technique that are generally most useful in monitoring fetuses affected by growth restriction. The, I guess, biology of how this works, or the physics, I guess, of how it works, or that umbilical artery blood flow and cardiac diastole is actually really, really high in normally growing fetuses. So you get a lot of forward blood flow in cardiac diastole. But in a growth-restricted fetus, blood flow in diastole can be reduced, it can be absent, or it can even be reversed, like the blood flow is actually going back towards the heart instead of away from the heart. In these cases, perinatal mortality and stillbirth risk are definitely increased when that blood flow in diastole is altered. This is particularly true in the presence of absent or reversed end diastolic flow. There's no evidence at present that umbilical artery dopplers provide more information about fetal well-being in other situations, so growth restriction is likely the only place you're going to see it employed in obstetrics, at least for now. Um, and a while back, we did a growth restriction podcast where we talked a bit about umbilical artery dopplers. So if you need a refresher on growth restriction or how we use those, um, take a listen back there. We had Dr. Chris Now on with us. It was a really great podcast. All right, Faye. So I think let's get to the meat of this. Um, no, because we've discussed a lot of tests and I guess you could pick one, pick the other, whatever, but how do you pick it? Does it matter which one you pick? Um, what's really the evidence of picking one over the other? Yeah, this is a really difficult thing to answer, right? Because the evidence for antenatal testing is largely circumstantial. So that means that stillbirth risk does seem reduced compared to unmonitored pregnancies, which are largely historic cohorts before current technology was available. There's a lot of confounding factors there. 
Obviously, this testing is now so entrenched in U.S. obstetric practice that doing an RCT on this would be very challenging and probably ethically dubious. So we likely won't have an easy answer to how useful exactly is testing because I don't feel like you could present this to the IRB and say, you know, all these women that are at high risk, we're not going to test them compared to these other women. Yeah, that'd definitely be a tough one to get through. (laughs) Yeah. So I think what we can say is that testing does have a high negative predictive value. So normal test results in most cases are highly reassuring. So these tests are associated with low false negative rates, with a false negative defined as a stillbirth within one week of the normal result. So it's very, very unlikely for you to have a stillbirth within one week of a completely normal antenatal test. So for each modality to kind of like get into the weeds a little bit, for an NST, that rate is 1.9 per 1,000, so a negative predictive value of 99.8%. A CST is 0.3 stillbirths per 1,000 live deliveries. So again, an NPV of greater than 99.9%, BPP 0.8 per 1,000, NPV of, again, greater than 99.9%, and a modified BPP is about the same as a BPP. The UAD overall, um, or the umbilical artery Doppler, is less studied, but the best available evidence suggests an NPV approaching about 100% as well. So again, these tests can potentially help reduce the risk of stillbirth with chronic conditions, things like hypertension, diabetes, things like that. However, acute conditions, things like abruption, cord accident, these cannot be predicted by these modalities. And so a lot of times, you know, we have patients that will come into the hospital for monitoring. Um, You know, the one instance that I'm thinking about, for example, are like mono-mono twins. We sometimes bring them into the hospital and we do like NSTs on them, which reassures us. But I think you always have to tell the patient, like, just because you're in the hospital and we're monitoring you doesn't mean that there can't be a cord accident, which is kind of an all of a sudden thing that happens. And we are not going to be able to pick that up on an NST. That's a whole other podcast for another day, Faye, on multiple gestations. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So why don't we quickly summarize? Sure. So we first talked about the rationale for antenatal testing, again, stating that this is meant to detect a change in fetal status over time in response to chronic hypoxemia and metabolic acidemia. The indication for antepartum surveillance is based on an increased risk of stillbirth, about twice the odds of that in an otherwise low-risk term pregnancy. So again, about 0.8 per 1,000 deliveries, which represents about twice the baseline rate. This is also the false negative rate of a BPP. We then talked about a bunch of different modalities for antepartum testing, including kick counts, NSTs, CSTs. Um, BPPs, and also UADs. So starting off with the maternal kick counts, we do know that a decrease in fetal movement does have an increased risk for stillbirth, which is why we ask folks to come in to be assessed for it. However, um, studies haven't really panned out saying that doing kick counts is necessarily more beneficial and decreases the rate of stillbirth more than people who don't do kick counts. What the meta-analysis that we cited before kind of tells us is that there's isn't robust evidence to do routine fetal movements. However, there probably should be more studies um, conducted to look at this. We next talked about the non-stress test. And remember, most importantly is that this is, even though the same tech as continuous fetal monitoring and labor, the vocabulary and the technique is technically different. They'll monitor the heart rate for at least 20 minutes, but up to 40 minutes looking for two accelerations in that 20-minute period. 
and that defines a reactive non-stress test. If you get to 40 minutes without two accelerations, that's considered a non-reactive test. You can have decelerations in a reactive NST. We then talked about a contraction stress test, which is when we look at the fetal heart rate in response to provoked uterine contractions. And remember, to do a CST, you actually have to have an adequate CST, meaning three contractions that last for at least 40 seconds in a 10-minute period. A CST can be negative, which is a good thing, meaning there are no late or significant variable decelerations. It can be positive, meaning that these late decelerations are present after 50% or more of the contractions. They can be equivocal suspicious, meaning that there are intermittent late decelerations um, or variable decelerations that are present or equivocal, meaning that there are decelerations, but potentially there's more frequent uterine contractions than we want, meaning more than every two minutes. And they can also be unsatisfactory, meaning an inadequate CST. You weren't able to get three contractions in 10 minutes. The biophysical profile and modified BPP were what we talked about next. This combines the NST with an assessment of amniotic fluid volume, and you stop there for the modified BPP. Or for the remainder of the BPP, you look at fetal movement, three or more discrete body or limb movements, fetal tone, one or more episodes of extension of a fetal extremity or opening and closing of the hand, and fetal breathing movements, one or more episodes of breathing lasting 30 seconds or more. You should see all of those on ultrasound within 30 minutes. Each component is scored as a zero if it's not there or a two if it's there. An eight to 10 out of 10 is normal. A 6 out of 10 is equivocal, generally requiring a repeat assessment or a different assessment. And a 4 or less out of 10 is abnormal, and management is context-dependent in this case. We then finally talked about the umbilical artery Dopplers. And so umbilical artery blood flow in cardiac diastole is very high in a normally growing fetus. In growth restriction or potentially in other things that can cause placental resistance, blood flow in the diastole may be reduced, absent, or even reversed. And these can be associated with perinatal mortality and stillbirth. However, there's no evidence at present that proves that UAD helps to provide more information about fetal well-being in other situations other than fetal growth restriction. We ended by talking talking about the value of different types of testing, and really the only thing that we could state with confidence is that all of the testing modalities have high negative predictive value with NPVs of greater than 99% for all modalities. Again, these tests help reduce risk of stillbirth of chronic conditions. Acute conditions such as an abruption or cord accident can't be predicted by using antenatal testing. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, any of your favorite podcatchers, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoffee1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, or on our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Send us some love, we'll send you some swag. You can find show notes for this show and every other episode on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction for this show or our prior episodes, or just want to say hello, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.